Would you bow with me once again? Father, we do come before you now to study your word. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that you have seen fit in your wisdom and grace to give us what we need for life and godliness, and we can understand your word by the illuminating power of your spirit. So this morning, work upon us, help us to understand these things, that we might apply them, put them into practice in our life. All to your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we will be focusing our attention on verses 14 through 28. 14 through 28. And I want to begin this morning just by reading this text for us again, and then we can introduce it and think through it together. Luke chapter 11 beginning in verse 14, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Having been a Christian now for nearly 40 years, I have often thought about the nature of truth. The reality that truth is uncompromising. Truth is unbending. That is simply to say that if truth is actually true, if what is said is truth is true at all, then it does not bend. It does not change to the whims of the moment. We certainly live in a world where that reality is fuzzy at best and altogether a sad virtue at worst. Truth today is 
as we all know and are aware of, is considered to be relative to one's own whims, one's own definitions. It doesn't seem to matter what is talked about today. It doesn't matter if you talk about science or you talk about religion. Whatever the subject, the world's definition of truth is that there is no black and white. There are only shades of gray. Unfortunately, even within evangelicalism, that reality of absolute truth is becoming more and more of an anomaly, which doesn't seem to make sense at all. We see numerous religions and evangelical ideas and philosophies that all have equal standing, and none are considered absolute truth. People are denying the six literal day creation that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 speak of. They're denying the authorship of the first five books of the Bible, that they were not really authored by Moses. In fact, they're myth altogether. People are denying God's omniscience, that God doesn't know all things, that He has to still learn and doesn't know who will truly be saved. They don't understand the purpose of the church and the program of God. They don't understand, it seems, what salvation is. How does God go about saving a person? And it goes on and on and on. In fact, just having the word Christian attached to your life, no matter how you live or what your religious affiliation might be within evangelicalism today, just having the word Christian gets you accepted as a genuine Christian in any number of religious schools or denominational organizations. As long as you can and do carry out your life under the umbrella of today's definition of tolerance and diversity, you're in. However, when one opens the Bible and simply reads it at face value, you quickly find that it doesn't proclaim the same kind of non-absolute truth. What it proclaims is absolute. It is black and white. It is as black and white as it comes, and it does it without compromise. It does it without apology. Why? Because eternity is at stake. It isn't just about today. It isn't about tomorrow. It isn't about who's happy and who's not. It's about eternity. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that kind of actual salvation cannot be diluted in any way if it is going to actually save the lost from the sin that has damned the soul to eternal hell if it does not believe. That is to say that there is no neutral zone. There is no middle ground when it comes to salvation. There are only two sides. There are only two ends, two kingdoms. It is either light or darkness, salvation from sin or eternal death in sin. It is either black or white. It is absolutely unbending truth. And I think that contrast is never made more clear than here in this text before us this morning. 
Jesus himself says in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you want the point, there it is. That is the point of his entire message here. If you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering. Word scattering is an interesting word. Scorpizo is the word in the original language. It's the idea of dissipation, dilution. Uh, the idea of putting something to flight or putting something out, dissipating it. It, it, it really is, in, in a great sense, to be liberal. To be liberal. To disperse something abroad. To scatter. To be liberal in your scattering. Even has the idea, some say, of the word scorpion. Scorpions have that little tentacle at the end of their tail and they sting you with it. It's to, it's to sting and disperse the poison into you. The root word is where we get our word skeptic. To be a skeptic. Black or white, you are either with Jesus or you are a liberal skeptic. There is no middle ground. Not, is, there is not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No, it's all of Jesus or it's none of Jesus. And here in our study of Luke, we have seen the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on display. This is why Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus, I want you to understand what you've been taught. I want you to have certainty about the things you've been taught. We have been taught about Jesus Christ. We have walked the road with the people who have followed Jesus. We have heard their conversations. We have heard their questions. We have seen them in struggle and in turmoil about what Jesus has said and what he's doing. We have witnessed the irrefutable evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He is the Messiah. His majestic deity has been on display. He's been there for all to witness. We have been the witnesses as he has mercifully shown his power over disease, his power over disaster, his power over death, his power even here over the kingdom of darkness. Jesus Christ has preached. He has preached the absolute truth concerning himself. He's done it through words. He has done it through deeds. He has done it through even those he has dispatched with his power to go and to proclaim him to prepare others for his coming. The truth has been clear. It has been irrefutable. And just like with every thread of absolute truth, there comes a time to decide. Who are you going to believe? Well, in our text, for many, the decision has already been made. Certainly it was true of the religious leaders of the day. They had heard, they had seen the truth, and they rejected Jesus. And amazingly, amazingly, out of mercy and out of grace, as his death is growing closer and closer on the horizon, Jesus continues to give reasons and warnings, 
and even possibilities for those who would hear. You and I wouldn't do that. We would end a relationship with them. We would say, okay, it's time to go. After preaching, after showing them truth by clear proof, if you don't want to believe, then have it your way. That's what we would say. But not Jesus. Jesus continues with reasons and warnings and shocking possibilities. And so here we are this morning. We've heard, we've seen, we've read, we've listened. We're not even halfway through the letter that Luke has written. And the words and the miracles of Jesus are right before us. It is decision time. Who are we going to believe? I suppose, I suppose in one sense we could really turn to just about any passage in the Gospels, any encounters that Jesus had in his ministry, and really come away with similar principles that are here for our own edification. But Luke records this one, and it's profound to learn from. And it begins, you notice, with Jesus performing another miracle, yet another miracle in front of the people, and then he reasons with the people. Let's begin with that, the reasonings, the reasonings of Jesus. We find it here in, in, a, in a larger section of this text, verses 14 through verse 22. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. So if Satan is also if divided against himself, how is his kingdom going to stand? You say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, then by whom do your sons cast them out? That will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied, and he distributes his plunder. As was the seemingly daily norm for Jesus, any time it seems that Jesus opened his mouth with words of wisdom, or any time he did some kind of miracle, some kind of confrontation would ensue. Why? Because Jesus is giving the irrefutable fact of who he is, and he's doing it here by the irrefutable reality of casting out a demon. Not something that he hadn't done in the past. This isn't something that wasn't reported about him or something they hadn't seen already. In fact, it was becoming more and more common. And it was an undeniable fact that the demon had left this man because this man was known in the community 
And yet upon the command of Jesus, because this man known to the people, because he's daily one in their midst who cannot talk, he begins to talk. And they, at the occurrence of it, are amazed, it says. When he speaks, the crowds are amazed, but notice there is also unbelief. Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Amazement and unbelief. It's the very nature of unbelief, by the way. This is what unbelief does. It always seeks to diminish the clear evidence. You're out sharing the gospel with someone. Someone is looking at you in the face. They're seeing the very miracle of God standing right before them as a changed man, as someone who's alive spiritually, sharing the gospel with them. And everything you're telling them there bounces off their heart at times, and they're trying to challenge the clear evidence with some illogical reasoning of their own. This is unbelief. It always seeks to diminish that clear evidence with some illogical reality. In this case, it is unbelief of God's merciful, powerful working. And here, the illogic of unbelief begins to slander Jesus Christ. It begins to slander the Lord of glory. In reality, it's not simply slander, it's blasphemy altogether. Verse 15 says, but some said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Clearly a lie. Clearly a lie. Beelzebul was the, was the name in the Hebrew culture that was an alternate name for Satan. This is really what's on their mind. You're, you're just one of Satan's. It actually means the Baal the prince, Baal the prince. In 2 Kings chapter 1, in the Old Testament, the name is used Baal Zebub, which means Lord of the Flies. He was the chief god of the Philistine city of Ekron. So it's actually being used as a derogatory name. It's as if somebody is calling God some kind of bizarre name, attributing to him things that are not. And it's a derogatory name here that's used by the Jews as an insult. So to use it here to describe something about Jesus in this way is the height of blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is? Blasphemy is simply attributing to God something that he isn't. Attributing to God things that are not true of him. Or listen, listen, not believing that he does what he does and not believing what he says is true. Not believing in one sense is a sense of blasphemy because God is who he is. And when God says what he says, it is absolute truth. And to not believe it is to attribute to God falsehood. That's blasphemy. So here, they were acknowledging that Jesus had cast out a demon. They weren't denying that fact, but it was only because he was linked arm in arm with Satan himself. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is being attributed to the prince of darkness. 
truth is being equated with that which is of lies. The very character and nature of God is being undermined by the very unbelief in the heart of man. Now I want to reiterate it again. To reject Christ in any way is a form of blasphemy. Let me say it again. To reject Christ in any way is a form of blasphemy. Why? Because rejection is the outcome of actually attributing to Christ something that He is not. For Christ to command us to believe upon Him and to be saved and to reject that is to attribute to Him that what He is saying cannot be true is a lie. Therefore we are saying about God that God you are not true in your character and nature. You are in fact lying. To attribute the work of God to the devil is the utmost blasphemy. This was the constant refrain of the Jews, by the way, about Jesus. We won't turn to all the passages, but you can go to John chapter 7 and verse 20. You can go to John chapter 8 and verse 48. John chapter 8 and verse 52. John chapter 10 and verse 20. It's all the same thing. You are of this, the devil. You're doing this by the devil. This is what is so shocking here. These people and their leaders. And I might add, here we are, 2,000 plus years into the future from this very moment, every person like these people are standing on the precipice of eternity. Here they are talking to the Lord of glory on the precipice of their very eternity, and they are denying the one who can save them, and it is showing by them saying that he's part of the satanic realm. Don't ever underestimate how deep unbelief will go. What is so shocking isn't that sinful man in his unbelief is so illogical. What is so shocking is that Christ cares for their souls enough to still show them that they are in danger. In other words, Jesus' mercy is not going to let them go away without challenging their reasoning. He's going to show them that in order to reject Him, in order to reject Him, they're going to have to deny God-given common sense. They're going to have to knowingly call white black and black white. Notice verse 17 and following. He knew their thoughts. I love how Luke just kind of throws that in there. little addendum you're reading down this. This is about Jesus. He knew their thoughts. Don't, don't run past that. That's the attribute of God, of omniscience. Jesus knows their thoughts because he's God. He knew their thoughts, and so he says to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Now he's challenging their utter nonsense in their logic by saying in verse 15, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. He's part of the demons. He knows their thoughts, and so he says, a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan's also divided against himself, how will the kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons that way, then how do your sons cast them out? But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, our Lord is, is so merciful. He's so merciful. He just calmly responds, knowing their stupidity, responds to their false and even their most heinous blasphemous accusations by pointing out that their conclusion, their logical end about him actually indicts their own reasonings. Luke tells us that Jesus knew that they were thinking. He's God. He's omniscient in every way. Therefore, Luke reminds us of that very fact. Jesus knew their thoughts. And he gives them then this illustration. It's interesting that Jesus, even though he knew their thoughts, didn't yet abandon them to their own sinful hearts. This is a characteristic of a loving and gracious God who even though He knows our hearts, He knows the reality of our thoughts, He knows the foolishness of what sin does and where sin has taken us since the fall in the garden, He doesn't abandon us to that. He comes and He begins to have mercy. Because of his mercy, he exposes their foolish reasonings with two obvious illustrations. Two obvious illustrations. A kingdom fighting against itself is doomed, and a house divided against itself cannot last. Logical conclusion, disunity never equals unity. Being against yourself, being against the things which you ought to be for will never bring about unity. If Satan is divided against himself, then his kingdom is doomed. Therefore, isn't that the conclusion of your reasonings? Since you say that I cast out demons by Satan... Isn't that what you're saying? Isn't that your reasonings about me? Here's what your reasonings say, and here's the logical conclusion of your stupidity. You can never have success that way. It will not happen. There is no salvation that way. You cannot overcome divided. And, verse 19, for the sake of argument, and... If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? It's like a good lawyer saying, okay, we'll stipulate that fact. All right, well, we'll give you that foolishness. Let me, let me just, like Paul in 2 Corinthians, let me bear with, in a foolish way with you and defend myself, even though I shouldn't be defending myself. Jesus, in some ways, is, is doing that. He's saying, okay, let, let me just bear with this foolishness for a moment for the sake of argument. If I stipulate that your view about me is right, then what do you say about your own exorcists? If demons are cast out by demons, as you say, then doesn't that indict your own exorcists with whom you agree? See, Judaism was fraught with religious exorcists. During the days that Jesus walked, it was all over the place. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly attributed the false exorcisms 
that went on, they attributed them to God, that they were God's doing. So if what Jesus did was the work of Satan, then doesn't that mean that what they already agreed to and agreed with in their own exorcist, was that also the work of Satan, if that's how demons are cast out? Because they certainly believe that demons were cast out by their own exorcists. You say, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's exposing the hypocrisy of illogical unbelief. It's foolishness. You can't be in the truth when you want to define truth as relative. You can't be in the truth if all truth is relative. If casting out demons prove them to be in concert with Satan, then why weren't they questioning the exorcists of their own day? You can't have it both ways. You can't say we're speaking the truth over here about you, Jesus, but over here it's not true. It's all relative. In fact, we get an example of their exorcist trying to perform this in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul is out ministering, remember? and Seven sons of one Sceva, one priest, comes and tries to cast out demons. And the one demon says to them, Paul, we understand, Jesus we know, but who are you? Who are you? And he jumps on all seven of these brothers and beats the tar out of them. not being able to exercise just one demon, even though they had been accepted as those who could. So how can these people be suspicious of Jesus who actually did cast out a demon and not of those who failed but were accepted as being from God? You see, if those exorcists in Acts chapter 19 were doing God's work and failed at it, and the logical conclusion isn't that Satan is cast out by demons. The logical conclusion is that Satan must be more powerful than God. Because they failed even though supposedly they were from God. He's saying, how can that be? How can that be? You say you believe in God, yet you deny me. You say you're with God, yet here your exorcist failed cast out demons, but they're from God? How can that be? Then Satan must be more powerful than God. Jesus says, no kingdom, no house, no team, no movement can survive with that kind of internal war. Your logic is foolish. In other words, civil wars never unite. Mark that down. Civil wars never unite. We see that happen in the church all the time. Civil wars go on throughout the evangelical church never unites anybody, it only divides. But civil wars always do, they always destroy. That's an absolute truth. Jesus says your reasoning is flawed. So Jesus says, verse 20, think about it. Think about it. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, you better think about this, you better edit your reasoning. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you're then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Fascinating statement. Because Jesus is invoking words that they would have understand. The words fingers of God 
or the finger of God would have brought to mind miracles performed by Moses in front of Pharaoh. Back in the Exodus, when God had sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, go to him and do this, and he'll let my people go, and so Moses does that, and of course the magicians of the day and the diviners of their day come with their magic illusions, come and do some of the things that Moses had done, and in the end couldn't, couldn't do all of these kinds of things. Why? Because they're not something that can be duplicated by some kind of elusive practice, certainly not in an internal sense, but in the end, they say to Pharaoh this in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. Even the illusionists of the day acknowledge the absolute truth. In other words, Jesus is displaying the same power. The same power that God was working through Moses to set his people free. God is now here in the flesh exercising the same power in order to do the same thing, to set people free. And so the conclusion has to be the same. Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God. And that means, beloved, you're in the presence of the kingdom of God. You're in the presence of the king. By a conclusion drawn from their own premise, you would think, you would think that they might have humbled themselves. But the most conclusive reasoning and the most astonishing miracles are totally lost on people who are obstinately determined to disbelieve everything that is absolutely true of Jesus. Doesn't matter what kind of reasonings you give. Doesn't matter if you were to rise from the dead, as we'll see in Luke chapter 16. It doesn't matter. They have the Word of God. They have the absolute truth. And yet, in obstinate, determined disbelief, absolute truth of Jesus doesn't matter. Instead of blasphemy and accusing and questioning Jesus, they ought to be seeking for forgiveness. In other words, think, Jesus is saying, think your life hangs in the balance. Your life hangs in the balance. Notice again, illustration number two you give. Remember I said there's two? Here's the second one. When a strong man, fully armed, verse 21, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. It's simple. As clear as it can be. These are the words of God. This is absolute truth. Being strong is only good until a stronger man comes along. Everything is secure until someone stronger attacks. So here's his second illustration. By implication, the strong man is Satan. You say I'm casting out demons by Satan himself. Well, someone stronger has come along. The strong man here is Satan. His possessions are people. People held in bondage by him, demon-possessed by him, and the stronger man is Jesus. 
God himself, Jesus attacks and takes the spoil. And I might add, not with a whole lot of energy. Jesus says, be gone, the demon leaves. It has to, because even the demonic realm does what God says. So Jesus is saying, listen, reason rightly. Reason rightly, don't reason foolishly. The very fact that I set the moot man's tongue free tells you that I'm stronger than the one who held him captive. That's what it tells you. That's the right reasoning. The stronger man is here. So to to do otherwise is to blaspheme. Me setting the captive free is evidence that I'm not on his team. I'm the stronger man. In other words, Jesus is the superpower. He easily defeats anything Satan does. And here, the mute man's mouth is set free. So again, it's the same thing we've been seeing. Think, think. Your life hangs in the balance. Reason correctly. Do not call black white or white black. To do so is to blaspheme the holy God and embrace eternal loss. This is Jesus' point. Because from his reasonings with these blasphemers, he gives warning. Notice verse 23 to 26. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of the man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. I'll just say it right up front. Reformation without regeneration is foolishly deceptive. This is exactly how the people are living. This is exactly how the religious leaders lived in a life of reformation, reforming their lives by means of doing. And yet reformation without regeneration is just foolishly deceptive. You notice some in the crowd are just outright deniers of Jesus Christ. They deny the truth. Others weren't so overt about that. They were those who didn't necessarily agree with calling Jesus Beelzebul. But they didn't believe. They wanted signs. Some called him one of the rulers of the demons. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. In other words, by Satan himself. Others, however, verse 16, to test him were demanding for a sign from heaven. They were middle-of-the-road people. But with Jesus, there is no middle-of-the-road, is there? Verse 23, clearly, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, if you're not for Jesus, fully, fully for Jesus and everything that Jesus is, then you're against Jesus. There is no middle. There is no neutral zone when it comes to Jesus. That's rather obvious for an unbeliever. You cannot do it 
your own way. You must come to Jesus. You must die to self, take up your cross, and follow Him. But oh, listen, sometimes we, even as genuine Christians, live like that. You say, how so? Because we don't tremble at the Word of God? We don't tremble at the Word of God. That's what the Bible says we ought to be doing. Isaiah 66, 2. Those are the ones to whom God looks, those who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble at His Word. Well, when we hear the Word of God and we refuse to do it, we treat it lackadaisically, we treat it as if it means really nothing or doesn't have the weight that it ought to, we are being just like these people. Middle road, Middle ground. We say we're for Jesus, but by our actions in those moments of disobedience, we're not. In light of what Jesus claims and does, to claim neutrality is to declare that you really don't believe. And the effects of your life show it. One of the dangers for the Christian in the evangelical church, particularly in the West, is professing to be Christian and yet living as if you're not. Saying we believe, but living as if we're atheists. If you're not part of gathering with Jesus, then you are a scatterer against Jesus. Remember what that means? To be liberal? To waste? To be a skeptic? Doesn't matter how much human good you've done. Doesn't matter what you do, how much you clean yourself out. If you're not fully with Jesus, you're a scatterer. No middle road. In other words, outward reformation will not help. Outward cleaning up just as that. It's the outside only. It doesn't do anything on the inside. You notice what Jesus says. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, verse 24, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I'll return to the house for which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And so it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. They go in live there last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Kind of amazing. Jesus is saying that guy's better off than he was before. Well, he was demon-possessed before. Yeah, he was an unbeliever before. Now he thinks he's okay and he's even worse off. Before he knew he had a problem, now he thinks he's okay. He's still got a massive problem. In fact, it's bigger than ever, but his problem is so big, he thinks he's right. He's convinced in his lostness that he's okay. No wonder he's worse off. These are indicting words to those who were there that day. They ought to be indicting words to those who are in evangelicalism and call themselves Christian. It ought to send a chill up our own spines. Why? Because Jesus is saying, beloved, to all the religious people that reformation without regeneration is no eternal help. In other words, cleaning up your life with Jesus only lasts for a while if the Holy Spirit isn't doing the work. 
That is simply to say that any person who cleans out the bad life things, things that don't seem to be helping life as you define life, you clean out the bad life things, but you don't replace it with that which is righteously good by means of a relationship with Jesus Christ. None of that matters. You're just simply now in moral danger worse than before. See, this is the problem with behavioral change without heart change. Proverbs tells us that out of the heart flow the springs of life. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so if a person cleans up but doesn't have the Holy Spirit to fill the space, there's simply openness for any sin to fill the spot. A vacuum has to be filled with something. That's why Paul says, don't just put off, you have to put on. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, uh, a kingdom divided can't stand. Jesus says, I, I can't be doing this by Satan. It, it would never stand. I'm more powerful. I'm the strong man. You can't have it both ways. It can't be relative. You can't say that, oh yeah, these people cast it out, but I'm doing it by demons. You can't have it both ways. Truth is absolute. It takes a stronger one to rescue the captive. There's no neutrality with Jesus Christ. It's black or white. You're either with him or you're against him. And I, I suppose that is the good news here. Because there is the possibility for mercy. Reasonings, warnings, possibilities. Verse 27 and 28, while Jesus was saying these things, one woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb who bo that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. And he said, Oh, on the contrary. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. I love it. Jesus didn't disagree with her. He didn't disagree with her. He knew that what she said was true. Right, even in Luke's Gospel, we've heard of Mary and mother of Jesus on earth. Jesus knew that she was certainly blessed in being his mother. But it was more than that. Mary was blessed not because of who she was. Mary was blessed because she heard God's word and believed it. She believed it. She obeyed it. And that same reality is true for all like her. Those who hear the reasonings and the warnings of Jesus and believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life, those obey His Word. Because they're believers. They believe what Jesus says. They believe it and do it. That's the 
road to blessedness. Hear the word of God and obey the word of God. Jesus has mercifully reasoned and warned and offered these people himself. That's the way to be blessed. Black or white. Black or white. There is no neutral area. If it's not Jesus, then it's eternal hell. It's the only choice. And so Jesus says, think. Your soul hangs in the balance. Think. Let's pray. Father, these are your words. They're not words that men would say to men. These are words that a holy God would say to men who are lost. Only in Jesus Christ is there hope, for he is absolute truth. His word is absolute truth. Without that, there is no hope at all. So Lord, this morning as we hear these things, as we have seen these over our study of your word, may the truth of it be impressed upon us to such a degree and with such weight that each and every moment in thought, word, and deed we think. And if we know you by faith, we walk in obedience to you as we hear your word. And if we do not know you by faith, I pray that we would repent and turn to you. Because in you is eternal life. There is no other way. So bless each one here. Allow these words to penetrate where they must. And all God's people said, Amen.